It's been called the Oscars of advertising. Every year, the best of the media, marketing, and advertising industries come here to the south of France to compete for top industry awards and to get their creative juices flowing. We're talking about the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity. Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is an old and dear friend, uh, the great Phil Thomas. We all know Phil from his tremendous leadership of the Can Lions International Festival of Creativity. Thank you for doing this, by well, the way. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Matt. Very exciting. This is season two, Phil. This is, uh, this is now a big hit this series. Must be going well. I, well, evidently. <laughs> so I'd like to go back and start in Plymouth and go back to your days uh, in the art world. I know you had a real affinity for photography. That's right. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that part of your life. I want to get to Empire. But before that, let's go back to Plymouth, a place where I've actually been lucky enough to go a few times. Oh, you have. Yeah. Plymouth is a city in the southwest of England, as you know, in Devon in England. It's a particularly attractive place, although it did get smashed by the Luftwaffe in the Second World War. So the architecture is not so great, but the location is very beautiful by the sea and with the moors behind it. So it's a nice place to go to college. And that's where I did go to college. Um, I'd been to quite a traditional school where the expectation was is you'd go to university, you'd do, uh, you'd do a kind of regular course like law or something like that. But I was never particularly good at school. And recent, recently I was looking through some of my old uh, reports from school and they said they, 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 the theme was really clear. It was like, this guy seems to be reasonably bright, but he just needs to work harder. He just got to work and concentrate and do better and work harder. And when I used to read those reports, I didn't understand what they meant because I, I was trying my hardest. In, in my view, I, was, I wasn't shirking. I was trying as hard as I could. And it wasn't until many, many, many years later that uh, my son actually was diagnosed with, with dyslexia and all of the traits that he had were the same traits as me. So when I went to school, it wasn't a thing. People didn't really get diagnosed so much but that that was a light bulb moment it's like ah I've got dyslexia so so I wasn't very academic so what was I going to do I liked photography I liked art and I did uh, photography for three years down in Plymouth and uh, didn't go to a regular university didn't do particularly well at school but that's not unusual you know uh, especially people who rock up in in the media and in our kind of world I think Matt it's not unusual to find people who uh um, maybe on the dyslexic side of things and just can't do academic work as well as other people. And, and you have, Phil, one of those unique brains where you do really well both in creative industry, but you also have a business head. Reflecting on your early roots now, and, and evidently you had some built-in challenges which went undiagnosed, as was very common, by the way, mm -hmm. you know, for people about our age. We're about the same age. I think I'm a little older. I'm 56. You're about? Uh, I'm a bit older than you then, a few years older than you, yeah. Okay. So about the same neighborhood. But you know, back then, things like that did not get diagnosed. As you evolved, you've got that rare blend, again, of creativity and business, where do you think that came from? Did it come from your parents? Did it come from, you know, colleagues? It didn't come from my parents. My, my father's an academic. He's, he hasn't got a single <laughs> business 
atom in his whole in his whole body. You know, he's uh, he writes books. He he's written like twenty five different twenty five books. He's had published. He never really thinks about if they're going to sell any or if he's going to make any money from them. He lives in his head, does my father. So there's no, there's no, there's nothing there. But it was a moment, and I'm sure a lot of the people maybe listening to this who've had this moment was, I was on the creative side, as you mentioned. I was, I was, I went into journalism ultimately, and I was the editor of a magazine, and they offered me the opportunity to go up the ladder. And do you want to become a publisher? And what does publishing mean? Well, that means you've got to start to understand the business side. And I was at this crossroads, and this will probably resonate with a lot of people, which is, okay, I'm either going to carry on on the creative side, but at the time, it was hard to see. I was quite ambitious. It was quite hard to see. Well, other than doing lots of other jobs like the one I'm doing, I'm not sure how I'm going to learn new things and make more money and do... So I, I took the opportunity to go into the publishing side on the business side. And then it's just a question, I think, of applying yourself and, you know, trying to learn as much as possible. But I'm still nowhere near, you know, I mean, I've got, you may know my boss, Duncan Painter, he runs Essential. And um, now that guy gets business in a way that I just never, you know, I'm not going to be there ever. So I think there are different layers of understanding of business and how it all works. Right. Fantastic. So let's go back to Empire. I know you uh, met Barry early on in your career and were there at the at the very beginning. What do you remember from that very first day as a young kid rocking up at Empire? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, I'd done photography and uh, for three years trying to become a good photographer. And again, what I realized was um, quite early on, I, I tried to make a go of it as a photographer. And photography is extremely competitive and you've got to be extremely talented. So it took me about a year, but I woke up one day and I thought, you know what? I'm not good enough to do this as a living. I'm not going to be there with these guys who are making a living as a photographer. And again, I think that's one of those moments where you, you, you have to wake up to, to the reality. I've just spent five years of my life trying to build this thing, build myself into something which was going to be a National Geographic photographer. I had this, this vision of being a National Geographic photographer because the work they do is so incredible. And I woke up one day, I thought, I'm just never going to make this. I'm not going to do this. So I started writing. So I, it, rather than just take pictures, I did the writing as well. So I started to write articles. I went traveling, went to Africa, wrote articles, got some of those published. And then I went into, I went into journalism. And, and finally, at last, you know, having not been very good at school, <laughs> not being a particularly good photographer, at last I found something that I was actually genuinely, you know, no false modesty, really quite good at. So I, was, I, I became a writer, a magazine writer. And ultimately, uh, for a successful publishing group in the UK called EMAP, published smash hits magazine and q magazine and lots of those famous uk magazines so your listeners from the uk might know those and uh, i got one call as you say from a guy called barry McElhenney. He said we're going to launch this movie magazine do you want to come i said i don't know anything about movies he says perfect perfect none of us do none of us know anything about movies because what they wanted to do is get away from the kind of film criticism that kind of really uh, intellectual rubbish that people write about films and try and make it fun and try and make it more how people do consume films. You know, it's all a bit of fun. So we, we created empire together and, uh, and eventually I became the editor and that was, that was a lot of, that was a huge amount of fun. 
And you had a, about a great, as I recall, about a four-year run there with Empire initially. Do you remember any of those early stories, anything there, you know, where you really put your fingerprints on the evolution of Empire? Yeah, I mean, I used to, um, I used to, I, w- I did a number of jobs there. So I was the reviews editor, I was the features editor, assistant editor, I was the editor. And ultimately what we tried to do was to try to bring a sense of reality. So we tried to pop the Hollywood bullshit bubble and Hollywood didn't always like that, but we were very English, if you know what I mean, in our sense of approaching those things. And we also tried to just say, people go to the movies to have a bit of fun. So let's talk about films that are popular. Let's talk about films that people are actually going to see and going to spend their hard-earned money on. And we always felt very, very strongly that somebody's going to take £10 or $10, they're going to go on a Friday night, and they're giving their time and their money to something, and let's just make it as good as it possibly can be for them. So I tried to bring that to to the thing, and... I mean, it was a lot of fun because I met I met a load of really, really interesting people. And uh, as a broad rule of thumb, movie actors are slightly boring and movie directors are amongst the most interesting people that you're ever going to meet in your entire life. So once I became the editor, I was very picky and I used to choose all the best assignments. So I went to try and interview the most interesting directors that I possibly could. Um, and I just wish, in, I wish that in those days we'd have smartphones because I would have my, uh, some selfies with some really amazing people. <laughs> right. Who stands out when you comb through the memory banks? Who do you remember? Well, I think, you know, what I learned, I learned about charisma at that time in, in, uh, on Empire because obviously these people that you're meeting, they're kind of, professional charismatic individuals and I understood the meaning of charisma and I understood what made what makes someone charismatic and it's it's it honestly is as simple as they seem really interested in you (laughs) they they are focused on you and they genuinely are so the people who I found fascinating were people who were interested in engaging with you and and talking to you so I mean, I know that his reputation is now slightly in tatters, but spending a day with Woody Allen was a really exceptional moment for me. Um, it was shortly after he'd actually got together with Soon Yi, so it, it, you know, it was it was all red hot and raw, and he um, came across to me at the time as just a f- an amazing, powerfully intellectual, interesting, rich, diverse individual i know especially now because there's been some more revelations but i know his reputation's not so good so he was incredible um tim burton who's the director of edward scissorhands and batman and a number of other movies was just a just a crazy genius so he, he was interesting martin scorsese was amazing but then you've got your heroes so i've interviewed robert de niro for instance and you know he's just got nothing to say unfortunately yeah, he's, t- he's tough to get a word out of him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Have you met him? Because he's a New York guy, isn't he? Yeah, we did something a few years ago. I got a phone call. We're very close to the folks that own and run the Tribeca Film Festival. And I got a phone call. They were looking to get Jerry Lewis. And Jerry had develop, uh, directed, there was a movie, King of Comedy, that he was in. 
and they wanted to put the two of them on stage. It was an anniversary or something. And they had a very good presenter, Brian Williams, who was on NBC. Now he's on MSNBC, uh, who's a very good interviewer. And they couldn't get to Jerry Lewis. And I think it was John, my friend, John Patrickoff was the COO at the time at Tribeca. And, and he knew Jerry was involved with the Friars Club where I belonged for many years. And so I got them, Jerry. And you had Jerry Lewis on stage. You had Robert De Niro on stage. You had Martin Scorsese on stage. And Brian Williams, a very good moderator. And it was like pulling teeth to get anything out of De Niro. Yeah. And that, that's his reputation. And we honored him one year at a dinner at the Friars. And he literally went up on stage with his remarks, which it was a pretty informal setting. The Friars is, you know, the, the jokes are a little dirty and it's, you know, this is very, it's not a serious occasion. Mm. Um, and he went up with a prepared handwritten acceptance speech and bungled the order of the pages. And I remember ended up reading one page twice. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't particularly eloquent, whatever he was saying. So yeah, this odd juxtaposition of someone who I, you know, I was certainly considered to be America's foremost actor in my lifetime. Uh, but off screen can barely put a sentence together. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it's a, it's remarkable, actually. And it is funny how people do conform to their stereotypes. So when I interviewed Sean Connery, I expected him to be a slightly dour, aggressive, difficult Scot, and that's exactly what he was. But he gave he was fan the copy he gave me was unbelievable. He had no inhib inhibitions whatsoever. He just told told me whatever you know. He just told me everything. Um, so <laughs> that was really interesting. Um, and then we used to be a little bit cheeky. So we had this page called "How much is a pint of milk?" A pint of milk. That's how milk comes to you in the UK. Um, you buy it in pints. Um, and of course, nobody really knows how much a pint of milk is, right? Especially a Hollywood star, because they don't have to think about it. So we had a questionnaire that was full of really quite irritating questions like that. Do you know how much a pint of milk is? And then they would try to guess and they'd be, you know, <laughs> dollars out completely. Right, no idea. Right. Um, and I remember I was doing Woody Harrelson and it was actually at the Cannes Film Festival, which I went to for about a decade. So I know Cannes very well. Um, it was at the Cannes Film Festival. And um, I was halfway through the questionnaire and he said, can I just stop you for a minute? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, are you the kind of guy that just really pisses everybody off? <laughs> oh, I thought, well, no, I try not to, but, you know. <laughs> so, so again, Woody Harrelson, you would imagine he would be the kind of person who would say that to you if you were slightly irritating. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. So you, you started to touch on creativity, which is where we'll get to uh, in your current role. Um, but culturally, one of the things that we've always observed is the UK punches way above its weight globally in creative industry. You know, you're not a small country, but you're not a big country either. The UK is what, about give or take 70 some odd yeah, million? Yeah, yeah. Yet in creative industry, in music, in film, in fashion, in the arts, the UK punches way, way, way above its weight. Where does that come from, Phil? I think it's, it's a historic thing. And I think it's been encouraged. And it's almost as if 
um, each generation builds on the previous generation. So if you're from a country that did produce the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, then you think it's possible to create Oasis or Coldplay or whatever that might be. And so I think the the the, the infrastructure of, of the United Kingdom as well helps to foster that kind of creativity. You know, we have an, a very, very vibrant small theatre scene um, developing actors. Uh, we have pub music scene that develops music. And so I think I think it's it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and that's on the one hand. But I think there's another element, which is the UK is just incredibly lucky that we speak English. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but because of the United States, the United States is the most important country in the world on so many different levels. We speak the same language as you guys. That gives, gives us a foot up and a leg up in just so many numerous ways. So if you're trying to break into the States, but your song is in Finnish, you're going to find that so hard. But if you're the Beatles and you're singing, I love you, yeah, 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 you're going to find that so much easier. And then when you, so when you've broken into the States, you're then culturally important. So I think people don't, you know, the, the success of the UK in many ways is partly to do with language. It's partly to do with the history of the fact that we are, uh, we were, uh, an empire building nation and uh, we've kind of thrown our net all over the world. It's also geographical. We're very lucky that we're in kind of in the middle in inverted commas of the, of the time zones, which makes business easier. So there are lots of things in the favor of the UK and I'm sure many people in Britain would say it's just because we're really talented and, but it's actually not, there are some very lucky things going our way. And so I think there are lots of different reasons why 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 we're 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 like that. But advertising is the same thing, you know. We've kind of out of the creativity of the UK came this extraordinary explosion of creativity and advertising, which has been superseded by the US uh, for sure. But at one time was probably leading the world. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. And one of the subjects that I find fascinating is in many ways you have a greater appreciation of a lot of aspects of our culture, US culture, than we do. You know, when you look at the early blues acts, you know, who the Stones and yeah. the Beatles all revered, you know, artists like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, you know, names that are largely lost in history, but were icons in the UK. And when these blues legends would come over, we had a, a great, guest on uh, last year, Jim McCarty, who was the original drummer in the Yardbirds, right. still, still alive. And, you know, the alumni of guitar players in the Yardbirds, there, there is no one, uh, no other band that has what they've had. They had Jeff Beck, mm -hmm. Jimmy Page, and Eric Clapton. And at one point, Beck and uh, Page were both in the band. Mm. And they got to play with some of the old blues American blue, and they loved it. Now you go over, even in modern times, a couple of years ago, I took a friend to go see Frankie Valley, and he sold out Royal Albert Hall. I think sometimes when he comes over now and Frankie's in his 80s, he sells out the O2. In America, he'll be playing in a theater of 800 seats, 1,000 seats, 2,000 seats. I wonder why it is that you folks appreciate our culture sometimes 
more than we do. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Jimi Hendrix is another example. So he came over to the UK and made it in the UK, didn't he, before that? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think we appreciate the, well, you know, the US is so rich and so diverse in, in its output. And those people that really look at what comes out of the US realize that it's it's just parts of it are just the best that has ever been created, you know, and, you know, that, that appreciation of the quality um, sometimes is, is only seen by those who are not at home. You know, people have to leave home to be appreciated. And that's, that's certainly happened many, many times, hasn't it? Um, but, but again, that's a really good point though, Matt, because if you think about the Rolling Stones, think about um, all of those early sixties bands, they were completely influenced by the U S yeah. So yes, that is create. They were creative, and they became amongst the best in the world. But but the, you know they they were built on the shoulders of giants. I mean, the early Rolling Stone stuff is just blues, pure and simple blues. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, the rock and roll of the of the Beatles early days, taken from Elvis and people like that. So, I mean, I am fascinated by this whole subject, and I'm fascinated by the the cultural dominance of the U.S. and the importance of the U.S. and the argument about China um, becoming the most important country in the world. So people say, well, the U.S. Has, has, is on the wane. So the U.S. empire is finished. So let's write a book about that because China's going to take over. And China might take over in a couple of ways. It might take over economically, might take over technologically even. But one thing it is never going to be able to do is take over culturally um, it, because the, if you think about where they're starting from, can anyone name more than one or two Chinese actors, musicians, directors? You know, it's just a handful, right? So, so I think the power of America is its cultural dominance. And we see this at Can Lions all the time. We see the US bestriding the lions and the work that they do is so amazing. And uh, I just find it a very interesting subject. Yeah, no, endlessly fascinating. I agree with you. All right, so so we move on from Empire. We then have a pretty good run at FHM. Yeah, so just to remind people, Empire is a movie magazine from the UK, and then in the in the kind of mid nineties, there was this boom of of men's magazines, and it was launched really by a brand called Loaded, which was very um, irreverent. And we jumped on that bandwagon. We launched this magazine called FHM, which was a slightly slicker, slightly more glossy men's magazine. Now, previously, the received wisdom was women read magazines about life, like Cosmopolitan or whatever it might be. Men read magazines about a subject. So men read fishing magazines and car magazines, photography magazines. But we brought this new idea, which was they might just read magazines about life. So they might read a magazine that's got a recipe in it, um, kind of how to how to be good in bed, you know, how to do this, how to do that. Articles with all sorts of different people. Men might be interested in that. And it turned out they were. And so it was hugely successful in the UK. We then exported it around the world. Now, we were beaten to the post in the US by Maxim. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know about Maxim. Maxim was very similar to FHM and got a foothold in the US before we did. And so we never really succeeded in the US. But what was interesting was that the formula of FHM 
which is this is what a 25-year-old man is interested in. That worked everywhere in the world. You know, we were talking about culture earlier on, Matt. Um, the formula worked every single place, whether Turkey, Australia, India, Singapore, South Africa. If you put the right things in, a 25-year-old man would buy that magazine. And so we had about 40 editions all over the world. Um, and uh, it was hugely successful. But I, th I think the world has now moved on hugely. And uh, most of those editions are now closed. Yeah, that, that business is... Uh had a real, real tough time, but yeah, absolutely. Empire's still around. Terry is one of our favorite moderators. She's a wonderful, wonderful gal. She just, so Terry White, who's the, she just wrote a book that went, has gone incredibly well in the UK as well. Just an incredibly powerful description of her early life, which a very raw and uh, powerful book. Yeah, we had, I think the last live London, we had her on stage with Richard E. Grant. And she, we had a one year at Advertising Week Europe with Edgar Wright, which was fantastic. Uh, Sir Kenneth Branagh, I think. And one year we got Al Gore, Vice President Al Gore. And she was not the most likely choice to lead the conversation with him, but we chose her and she did a brilliant job. I, we think the world of her. Yeah, she's, she's, she's really amazing. She's just, she's absolutely amazing. I mean, Empire has been very lucky in the sense that it has had some really, really good editors, uh, yeah. not counting myself in that, but just apart from me, there, there've been a lot of great editors and what Terry's done. And this is interesting from a media perspective is she's managed to shift, um, from just being pure magazine. So the social media, the, the podcasts they do, the digital presence that they have is just really excellently done. And I think that's why Empire has succeeded and survived and why other magazines haven't. And so then you begin a, a, a tenure, which took you to a bunch of places and a number of different gigs with EMAP. And Australia, is that where you ended up? Yeah, I ran EMAP out in Australia and Southeast Asia for, for, for a while. And that was a baptism of fire and very, very interesting um, uh, and fun place to live, fun place to be. Uh, small markets, so it makes it very hard. And the, in, the players there are brutal. I mean, the, com the, com the competition is absolutely brutal. So people like Kerry Packer, who people might know, Rupert Murdoch, these people <laughs> don't take kindly to a bunch of limeys rocking in from the UK and thinking that they can invade their space. So we had a, a tough, tough environment, a tough environment, but a lot of fun. Um, and then I came back to the UK and, and then we just bought this thing called can lions and nobody really knew quite what it was and why we'd bought it <laughs> but uh, um uh, we had it we'd had it about a year and uh i happened to be and it sounds ridiculous but i just literally happened to be in the right place at the right time without a particularly um without much of a role and i think they looked at me and they thought well maybe he can have a go at it and that was quite fortuitous because i stayed as the ceo for 10 years <laughs> So that was give or take about 15 years ago, yeah. around 2006. That's right. When you joined them, the festival is give or take 60 some odd years old. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that you have uh, looked in all the archives. What have you looked at from the earlier days and the creation of Can that left an impression on you? And you have now left arguably a bigger imprint 
on what can has become than anybody else in that 60 some odd years. What did you look at from the early days that you could learn from, borrow from, or that just influenced you? Well, there was a guy who took it on called Roger Hatchuel. So so the history of Cannes Lions is that it was launched actually not in Cannes, in Venice, by the cinema advertising groups, because they were seeing all these film festivals popping up all over post-war Europe. And they were saying there are lots of competitions celebrating the movies. Why don't we have a competition that celebrates the ads before the movies? So it was launched as a competition of cinema advertising. And it stayed like that for a very, very, very long time. I mean, it didn't innovate. If you can believe it, it was launched in 1954. And the first category to be added was print in 1991. So so that is a very, very long time (laughs) with no innovation whatsoever. But what had happened was that the guy, Roger Hatcherell, who was running Pearl and Dean, which was one of the members of the Advertising Association, said to the group one day, you know what, we're, we're an association of cinema advertising groups. You know, we're not an event organizer. I'll tell you what, I'll take this on. Uh, you don't even have to pay me anything. I'll just take it on and I'll develop it and do it for us. And there was a vote and he basically took it on. And he then innovated. So it was Roger who introduced the, the other categories like print and others. He, he introduced cyber, which was the old name for digital, way, way back in 96, very early. He brought speakers for the very first time to Cannes. Um, he developed our, our representatives model, which was a f- brilliant model of um, reciprocity, where we, we have about 90 representatives all over the world that work for us, and we work for them. So he innovated in all these different ways. And, it, and so, so when I joined, I... As I mentioned before, I'd been to the Cannes Lions Film to the Cannes Film Festival many, many times. And the Cannes Fil- Film Festival at the time was a, a big cultural event. It was, a, it was a very important, exciting, vibrant event. And I'd heard that Cannes Lions was very similar. But the first year I went, I was astonished about how small it was and how actually unimportant it was, I thought and how culturally not very resonant it was. As I looked around, I thought, there's a lot of people here who are just talking to themselves. It's just one industry talking to to itself. And the industry thinks this is really big and important, but that's only because they haven't been to the Cannes Film Festival and seen something that's really big and important. And I remember thinking at the time, funnily enough, I was walking along the Croisette, as you may well know, and on the right-hand side, away from the sea, there are all these incredibly expensive shops, you know, Chanel and Bulgari and all these ridiculously chic shops. And the first time I went to Cannes Lines, I noticed those shops. And I thought to myself, I've been to Cannes for 10 years and I didn't know there were any shops on this street like that. And the reason I didn't know is because the film festival is so busy with people, you can't see those shops. So at that point, I thought, well, you know, (laughs) we've got to make this more than it is. So I kind of said to myself at the time, I wonder if we can create something that has cultural resonance and and is much wider. So at the time, it was just advertising agencies. There were no clients there. There were no platforms, no media people. It was just advertising agencies. So I, I just thought, I wonder if we can make it more. And it just coincided, Matt, with this explosion that you know better than anybody 
in the interest of creativity. So the platforms became interested, the media people became interested, the clients became very interested. Suddenly, really not necessarily through anything we did. What we did was try to, it's a bit like a, uh, and a soccer player, you know, the soccer player has to run to where the ball comes, or I think in in your parlance, it's run, go to where the puck goes, isn't it? Or something like that. We, close, we, yeah. we were we were just trying to be there when the puck arrived. And so we could see, I could see that Facebook were going to, if we could get them interested, they'd love it. Google would love it. You know, the, the, the other media owners would love it, that we could introduce clients. Um, because they were ready for it. And so all we did really was just try and build something so that they were ready. When they were ready, they came and they thought, yes, this is, this is for us. And so that took about 10 years, I suppose, but I think we, we made it ultimately. And just before, I think the 2019 edition that we did was one of the best we've ever done, um, just before COVID hit and spoiled everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get we'll get to the fun we've had the past year in, in a bit. But go back again to the beginning in 06. Clearly, it was smaller in scale. Um, the mix of players was dramatically different than what you'll see in, you know, your glorious return in 21. Completely different. I mean, there were no... Uh, no digital platforms were there. There were very, very few clients. There were some. I mean, P&G did come and Unilever as well. So some of the really big clients had been coming for a number of years, but they weren't there in any scale. Um, and the, there was no activity outside of the Palais. So there were, you know what it's like now. Those people who've been to Cannes, there's just so much happening outside of the Palais. If you can imagine what it was like in 2006, was there was nothing happening outside the Palais. It was all inside the Palais. And it was very, very small. So the, and, and the advertising industry were the main people who came. So what's changed, of course, as you well know, is now there are, there's everybody from movie companies, you know, Disney are there, um, Warner Music is there, Universal Music, Live Nation, all the music people, all the, all the, all the content people, Netflix, Spotify. And we've been lucky because we've been there while this explosion has happened. And sometimes when I do lectures to, to young people, I say, whatever you do, try and choose an industry that's booming, not one that is going down. So, because if you're in newspapers or something in the, you know, there's nothing, if you're a mag in magazines, what, what are you supposed to do? You could be the best, the most creative, the most talented executive in the world. But if you're on a magazine, what can you do? So, I think choosing choosing where you go and what you choose to do is such an important part of life. So you talked a little about the uh, rise of the big digital players and clearly a period of growth and change for the industry. And you touched on the embrace of the clients. Looking back over the last 15 years or so uh, and our 10 years basically overlap. We started Advertising Week in 2004. So just a few years before you joined EMAP and CAN. Was there an inflection point, Phil, where all of a sudden it became a must go for the clients? I think it was two things that happened and it was around about, it was just after the uh, financial crisis. So 2010, 2011, 2012, those kind of times. 
And two things happened. The first was the proliferation of options and partners meant that the clients needed somewhere to go to try and work out who to work with. Because if you think about the ecosystem in the old days, it was quite simple in a way. I'm, I'm a brand. I've got a problem. The advertising agency is going to come up with a creative solution to that problem. The media agency is going to buy me some space somewhere and everybody's happy. You know, it's not complicated. What happened in the... Uh, after the financial crisis was, well, how do, I, how do I manage Facebook? How do I manage Google? What am I going to do about this? How do I, what's this e-commerce thing? All that complexity and the number of players meant that they needed somewhere to go to kind of discuss that and talk to people and understand it. And that went hand in hand with consumers having so many options when it came to avoiding advertising. So at the time, as you know, uh, ad blockers were there. Um, there was all sorts of ways. Increasingly, there still are many, many ways to consume content with no advertising. And so how do you get people's attention? Well, the way you get people's attention is to be creative and create something that people actually want to engage with. So I think those two things, it's like, firstly, I'm a brand. Who the hell do I talk to? Who do I partner with? How do I understand this landscape? And by the way, what does great creativity look like? Those are two very, very big questions. And just after the financial crisis, there was an explosion in those two questions. And that's really when, it all, when they all started coming in a big way. And Phil, one of the things that I've uh, admired about your tenure and leadership is you have found new ways to grow. And one of those is how you have really uh, expanded in the fastest growing part of the world, and that would be the Asia Pacific Rim. Go back to the early days and your strategy uh, to really engage China in particular, uh, and how you've enjoyed success there, but go back to the beginning when perhaps it was less of a success. China's been a hard nut to crack, and I wouldn't pretend for a minute that we've that we've cracked it. One thing that I've learned about China, and we've worked in China quite a lot now, is that partnership is critical. You know, you can't, you just literally cannot do anything unless you've got a strong partner and people to help you. Uh, government government help is just crucial as well. So nothing really is going to happen for you in China unless you have powerful people that are going to back you. So we were quite careful about the partners that we chose and took a lot of time and energy in developing relationships. Because unlike in other parts of the world, it's hard to just go in and do your thing. You need that you need that partnership and, and you definitely need political help. Um, that was, it was aided really, I think, by a desire of China to look outwards. So this, this again, this happened maybe mid-2010s where China was starting to say, we need to look outwards now. So our market is starting not to be saturated, but it's getting harder. So the internal market is getting harder. So how are we going to take our products and services externally? How are we going to operate on the, on the world stage? And so we have uh, delegations from China who are coming to learn about those things. And 
I think this has taken a back step in the last couple of years with the tension between China and the rest of the world, but it was really starting to open up. So towards the back end, uh, the, just before COVID, I mean, we had really strong relationship with Tencent, with Alibaba, with JD.com, and with all these players in China who desperately wanted to get out into the big world. And TikTok's another good example. Um, and so it's it's a very, very uh, fertile area, but it's tough. It's really tough. It's really, really tough to crack. Um, and the other challenge from a creative point of view is that... Um, and I did a I did a panel actually for Spikes Asia on this a month or so ago, is that um, creativity in in Asia is quite different from from the rest of the world. Um, it's very culturally nuanced, and also the technology is completely different. I mean, they're actually a really long way ahead of the rest of us. And I remember, I remember I, I for a while I ran a, a one of our businesses, Money Twenty Twenty, which is a payments business. And so I've spent quite a lot of time in China with the payments people. And in China, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of shops where you walk in, you get your stuff, and you walk out and you pay with your face, right? You don't use your phone. You literally pay with your face. And in New York City, if, if I have dinner with you, somebody brings me a piece of paper, takes my credit card away, brings me a piece of paper back, and I sign it. So that's how far ahead they are technologically. And uh, I think understanding that's quite important. Fantastic. So you have been a constant with Can, and we'll talk about Dubai and Spikes and some of the other properties, uh, but you have been through several ownership groups since you started way back when, give or take again, about 15 years ago. How have you managed to stay on that surfboard uh, all this time. And that's probably a pretty good analogy. Uh, and I'd love to hear your comments on Essential, uh, which took over the festival a couple of years ago. Yeah. So EMAP bought it. EMAP was a public company. So there you go. That's a public company. Then we went, we were taken private and we were owned by private equity. And then we were sold again, or we were floated rather, and we became another public company called Essential. So yeah, it's changed quite a lot. Um, I think the my experience of private equity is very positive because they backed us because they're very interested in success. So as long as you as long as you're delivering, they're kind of they get off your back really. They're, they're fine about it. Um, and then uh, with essential, I mean, it's it sometimes you just get lucky with with your boss, you know, with with whoever it is that's that's in control and in charge and. I've always been very, very supported and uh, backed by by my various bosses, but certainly by my current boss, the CEO of Essential Duncan Painter, um, who really got the festival very quickly and understood it extremely quickly and understood the power of it. Um, and so I think riding the surfboard is often about just the luck of whoever happens to be in charge of the purse strings. And I think we've, we've been lucky and we've delivered, which is, which that's what you've got to do, right? That's the table stakes. <laughs> you've got to deliver. Well, there's luck. And there's also that expression, which I think is very true, that luck is the residue of design. So uh, going back to your early uh, comments about luck and more recent, I think you've had a pretty good plan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Talk about some of the other 
the mini cans, if you will, that are part of the empire. How has it been overseeing the growth of those? I went many, many years ago. I did get to go to the links in Dubai, but you've got a whole sort of global network of properties all built around creativity. Yes, we've got spikes in Asia and uh, Dubai links in the MENA region. And we've got Eurobest, which is a UK edition. We've never launched in the Americas for various boring reasons that I won't talk about. But um, yeah, what, what they do is they kind of feed into Can Lions. So they develop creativity in the region and the people are very grateful for that. If you take Dubai links, for instance, um, I mean, the strategy is partly to have a standalone business, but it's mainly to feed into the mothership. So uh, Dubai Links is quite a good example. So before we launched Dubai Links, the whole of the Middle East region, Middle East and North Africa, um, the year before we launched Links, it won one lion, one lion for the UAE. Um, in 2019, I think the Middle East won 55 lions and it won a, Lebanon won a Grand Prix. Now, partly that is to do with links. So links has kind of raised the creative bar. People have seen the possibility. They've seen that they can create work that is world beating. Then they choose to enter it into, into can. So it's kind of like a feeder. So what we're trying to do is raise all boats, but ultimately can is the global, the global benchmark and the one that we're feeding everything into. Um, and that seems to have worked as a strategy. So that, so it's not, they're not, what, what I realized quite early on was that we've got a market, an end market that thinks globally. So WPP thinks is a global, horizontal global. P&G is horizontal global. There are very few local players. So I thought, well, what this industry needs is a very, very dominant global event. And then we can have feeder, other, feeder events into it. And so that's been the basis of the strategy. It's very different from the... Money 2020 strategy, which, as I mentioned, is a fintech event, because fintech is much more regional because of local uh, laws and uh, technologies are different and regulations different. So you can actually run quite big regional events in fintech. But I think in, in advertising and marketing, it tends to be seen as a global thing. I think you're right. So over the years, you've seen an awful lot. You have a huge thought leadership program. You have brands that activate and do so brilliantly. I, I think my favorite over the years was uh, the Snap Ferris wheel that <laughs> that's Betsy Lack and her team did. I thought that was just so out of the box and so clever, and you, and you certainly couldn't miss it. <laughs> As you look back and reflect, Phil, what do you remember when you think something, somebody really nailed something? Somebody really got it right. And what was something that you thought might be successful that didn't hit the way it was planned? Well, I, I talk about the, the Ferris wheel since you brought it up, actually, Matt, because we received that design and it, that design was signed off by Evan himself. And we received that design and we talked about it quite hard and we said, what do we think about this? It's a Ferris wheel right in front of the Palais. And my view was, well, it's amazing because we're in the advertising industry and what this company, Snap, is doing is saying, look at us. This is the most incredible piece of 
activation, brand activation that you could possibly imagine. All right, I want to get right into the Snapchat Ferris wheel. And okay. off camera, when I said to you, I want to talk about the Snapchat Ferris wheel, what did you say? Best idea I've ever seen at Can. First of all, I think these guys are audacious. And it's audacious to have built not just the Ferris wheel, but a huge one right in front of the Palais. The logo is lit up at night. In a world where there is tens of millions of dollars being spent trying to get people to recognize that you're doing something a little different, home run. It's amazing. And actually, it came in for a huge amount of criticism because the, uh, the industry kind of thought it had gone too far. Right? Cannes become a circus. It's crazy. It's mad. This is you know, it's supposed to be about creativity. It's supposed to be about the work. What the hell is this Ferris wheel doing here? And we got a big, big backlash for it. And everyone will have their own different views on that, of course. But um, I thought it was interesting that they thought that because it seemed to me they, that Snap were doing the very job that everybody in Cannes is trying to do, which is to say, look at me, look at my brand, I'm here, you can't miss me. So that was a very interesting, controversial one that, uh, that we still talk about now, actually. Um, and you can find articles on, on the web uh, criticizing that whole thing. So that, that's a really, really interesting example. Um, uh, I think the, the moments that stick out for me are, um, some of them are about the work. So some of the work that has won for the first time at Cannes, whether that's Fearless Girl or um, Like a Girl or some of the stuff that we've seen over the years up on the stage at Cannes for the first time has been so exciting. Um, and then the speeches as well. I don't often get to see the speeches, but I, I wanted to go and see Monica Lewinsky. I was absolutely fascinated by what she might talk about. And that was the best speech I've ever seen. It was just incredible. She was talking about being trolled way before social media even existed. And mm. her whole take on it, her delivery, uh, just the honesty of it, it was just amazing. It was absolutely fantastic. So that one does definitely um, resonate. And we talked earlier about your heroes, not only not always rising to the occasion, Robert De Niro. <laughs> um, was there something that somebody was doing or planned that you thought was going to be a big hit and just didn't take? Yeah, but now there were kind of too many to mention, and I also it would be kind of unfair to mention them, but, I, but the, some really surprising things. Like I remember one year, and maybe it's our marketing wasn't right, but one, one year Rod, somebody brought Roger Daltrey, and so, somebody came into the office and they said, hey, Phil, do you know that in a minute Roger Daltrey's going to stop the interview and he's going to play a song? And I said, oh, right. Oh, I think I'll, I've got a minute. I'm going to go and have a look at that. So I went into the Grand Audi, which holds about two and a half thousand people. And Roger Daltrey had just started singing and he just had an acoustic guitar and he was singing one of the, um, one of the songs from Who. And um, the place was half empty. And I remember thinking, oh my God, does everybody realize what's going on in here? You know, we've got Roger Daltrey playing a live set and, um, and, and the place was half empty. And so things like that do surprise me. Sometimes I look around and the place is absolutely packed. And I'm thinking, why are all these people here? And then other, other times you think, where is everybody? So that's yeah. part of, just part of the, uh, the way it goes. Yeah, I, I've had the same experience. I think sometimes the audience is tough to figure out. Yeah, yeah. So, so the past year for anybody who is in the events business has been incredibly challenging. 
Um, talk about the emotional part of it, Phil, and how as the leader, how you have tried to keep yourself going, keep yourself positive, and instill that sense of there will be light at the end of the tunnel, even when we didn't have a lot of reason to think there would be, to your team. Yeah, it's been, it has been hard. People may not, um, well, I mean, our revenues just evaporated. I mean, the business basically evaporated. We've got some revenues from digital and a bit, a bit of here and there, but the essential figures are public record so people can look them up and our, our business evaporated and our purpose evaporated as well, to your point. Matt, you know, the team is there to put on an event in Cannes. And actually, even more importantly, the team is there to judge the work and, and celebrate the work and take that work to the world and, and be the benchmark for the year. And not to have that role is really, really tough because we cancelled the awards as well as the event, as you know. And so people found it very, very hard. And I think I, I, think I shifted into let's figure it out mode quite quickly. I think me, me, me and the team and Simon Cook, who's the brilliant managing director of Lions, um, just got into execution mode. But I remember it was the week of can itself. So we decided we were going to cancel. We went digital as everybody did. We created quite a good digital event. And then there was a day that we would have all been going to can and I remember I called Simon, Simon Cook, and he said, how are you doing? And I said, I just feel really, really sad. And he said, yeah, I do as well. I just felt so sad that it had come to this, that, that you know, the whole point of what we do was not going to be there. Um, and that's just the reality, I think. I think we all, it was like that moment where you just think, God almighty, I can't believe this has happened. And and you, you click back into executional mode, but it was very, very tough on a lot of people. We lost people. We had to furlough people. We made people redundant. Some much-loved members of our team were made redundant. And um, it was a really, really, really tough year. And to be honest, we're not having that much of an easier one this year either you know we're going to run the the awards of course but the the event is looking less and less likely as time goes on right and looking ahead you know we're all navigating 21 and uh you know the slow return um but you've accomplished so much phil looking ahead to 22 and 23 and 24 what else is on phil thomas's to-do list that you would like to get done further at Cannes? Well, I think it's now rebuilding, right? So it's, it's in 2019, I remember the festival in 2019. I remember thinking everything's come together. You know, the, the mood was really positive, you know, because we do, we get a lot of criticism for what we do. I think, and I say to the team, sometimes there's, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. You know, we get criticism because we're important, everybody. Um, but we do get criticism. But 2019, everything came together. It was a huge success. We'd beaten budget. It was the mood was great. The work was great. And we've taken enormous, enormous hits. So it's going to take years to build back, I think. And 
I think now the fun will be how do we build back? So what's it going to look like? Because we've got there, it's not just COVID, as you well know. It's not just COVID that's a challenge. It's sustainability is a challenge. It's like how many people are going to want to get on planes anymore? How sustainable are these events that we run? How can we make them more sustainable? And then, of course, the the classic, which is how are we going to build digital into this whole thing? How are we going to make these events uh, hybrid, digital, and physical? How, what's the business model of that? How do we come back in a really meaningful way and a relevant way because we can't come back we can't just replicate 2019 it's just not going to be that way again and so i think that's a really interesting intellectual challenge and one that's going to keep us pretty busy for quite a long time i think optimistic very optimistic and i'm optimistic about events because i know that human beings need each other right so there's a reason why restaurants exist i mean we could all just sit on our own and eat it's perfectly possible uh, there's a reason why events exist there's a reason why we all come together and watch baseball games or whatever um people love being together people need it and i think a lot of the mental health issues that people are having at the moment is because they're not together so what our events do, like yours and like mine, is they bring people together and there's just nothing like that. It's too human. It's needed. I'm sure you agree with that, right, Matt? A hundred percent. Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, yeah. way back when. And uh, I don't think there's any question that we will get back there. I think you hit on a, an issue that we'll both be dealing with, which is uh, business travel. Yeah. And I think, you know, we would always have great success in convincing a handful of, you know, global keynoters to go to Sydney, for example. I think the last one we had Fernando Machado there and we've had Jeff Goodby down there. Um, I think it'll be a, a heavier lift to convince folks to get on a plane, you know, to be on stage for an hour. Yeah. And maybe that's not all bad, you know, but um yeah, I think the fundamental need, whether it's at events like ours in the B2B space, or if it's, you know, filling Twickenham to watch Six Nations or, you know, our stadiums and arenas here and everywhere else, cricket grounds in India, I think people want to get back there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you're right, it's not going to be easy. Yeah, good. All right. Uh, this was great. Is there anything else that uh, we should have hit on that we didn't? No, I just want to wish you well as well with your business, Matt, as you as you re rebuild, because a lot of the things that I said are resonant to you as well, I'm sure. So, yeah, well, uh, we'll, 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 we'll keep fighting the good fight, right? And uh, I have tremendous admiration for what you do and the business that you have built and continue to build. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I think this is not going to be a warp speed comeback. <laughs> No, that's great. It's very slow. We'll get there eventually. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the roaring 20s will begin in 2022, and then we won't, we won't be looking back after that. We'll get back there. All right, pal, thanks for doing this, and we'll stay in touch.